Hi, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. And unlike most days, today I'm actually dictating this podcast from my home office, so you'll get a little bit better audio quality uh, as I uh, dictate this directly onto a computer and into a program called Audacity, which is available for free for any of you aspiring podcasters out there that would like to do your own show, either on things like I do or on any other subject. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, today's show is going to be another show about the economy. I know some of you guys don't dig shows about the economy, but uh, I think it's important that we look at this right now. I'm beginning to sense something that I'm very concerned about. I think that the average person on the street is sitting here looking at the state of the economy and all the things that have happened in the stock market hitting what appears to be a bottom at about 8,200. Every time the market's hit that mark or, or a little bit below, it's kind of rebounded back. I talked to a financial advisor that actually said I wish it would go back there again because I could make some more buy recommendations because we've seen a good solid floor there. And uh, we're looking at the uh, Detroit Big Three auto bailout. And we're seeing a reality that sooner or later some type of bailout is going to come. The Senate shot it down. Actually, the Republicans in the Senate stood their ground and filibustered the thing so that they couldn't get a 60% majority to get it out of, out of committee and onto the floor and uh, killed the bill. <clears throat> so uh, last week I made a prediction that when that happened, the stock market would go down. It ended up 60 points up, and people commented on the blog and said, Jack, see, you can't time the market. Couple things I want to clear up today. One, when I say time the market, I am not talking about timing the market today or tomorrow or even this week. When I say time the market with your investments, I'm talking about, and I think I've said this so many times, and I, I absolutely swear to God, this is the last time I'm going to say it in response to anything. I might say it again in a different show about a different point, but God, I'm tired of you folks that aren't getting this. All right, timing the market with your investments simply means that when major economic downturns are forecasted, and every expert out there is saying, stay the course and stay in your mutual funds, it's okay, you're investing for the long term, but yeah, the market's about to slide 10, 20, 30%, and every economic indicator is in place to demonstrate that those experts are right, just like we went through this summer. Everybody this summer said, yeah, the further we go into this year, the more the market's going to slide, but don't move your investments. That's just stupid advice. In other words, I know that you're about to lose 20%, 30% or more, in some cases 50% of your retirement money, but don't worry about it. It'll come back. And if you bail, then it might go up and you might miss out on some of the up, but nobody thinks it's going to go up. Okay, That's what I'm talking about with time in the market. So when I said the market would go down Friday last week, um, it was just a guess. And I was willing to put a bet on it. And, you know, folks, you asked me, but nobody took the bet while the market was still open. And uh, what happened was Bush came out and said, you know what, I'm going to bail out the auto workers if the, if the Senate and the Congress won't. There's already money appropriated. And the Fed basically said if Bush doesn't use the money that's set aside for TARP, which is the money that's supposed to be going to renegotiate bad loans, the $700 billion stimulus, the money that's left from Phase 1, if he doesn't use that, then we'll step in and we'll do something. So the auto, bailer, auto workers are going to get bailed out. The problem with that, of course, is that they're running a sinking ship, and we're just going to delay how long that's going to sink. But with all of that going on, I'm beginning to sense that people are thinking this is it. This is the bottom that we can look forward to a recovery from here. I do not believe that is the case. Now, this is one man's opinion as always, and I could be wrong. But I do not believe that is the case. The global economic indicators and the domestic economic indicators right now are forecasting not a, a rebound, 
they are forecasting continued misery and more problems and more jobs lost. And what you know, what you got to understand about a, a depression, since everybody wants to finally admit it's a recession, I'm going to start calling it a depression because that's what it is, that every action has an equal reaction, right? And what happens is that every single person that loses a job decreases the spending in an already weakened economy and eventually costs someone else a job and you end up in a downward spiral. And there are, just with the automakers alone, there are countless little businesses that build parts and, 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 and accessories and things like that that are on the verge of going under right now. Now the problem is even if the auto workers get bailed out, those businesses are not going to be saved short term. They can't be because just because we bail these guys out doesn't mean they're going to ramp up production and start building more cars and trucks. Because that would be asinine because nobody's buying them right now. So until the buying resumes, the production has to stay down. All right? That's the basic way that this thing's going to work. So I want to go over some things that are going to pop in the next year, 2009, that are really going to begin to exasperate themselves on the global economy. I want you to hang with me on this one, and I want you to make sure you get it, because if you don't get this, you're going to start believing these weenies that come on your TV set and tell you that happy days are going to be here again soon. Now, I do happen to agree that the market, the stock market, there may be some really good buys in there on an individual basis right now, and you got to make your. You know, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't claim to be. And you got to make your own decisions, whether it's funds, whether it's stocks, whether it's options. No matter what it is, you got to make your own decisions on on what to buy there. But I think that a lot of the decline has been priced into the market now. Um, I, I think there's some real stability there. And and the financial advisor I'm speaking of was right when he said, you know, the market hits 8,200, people start buying whatever. Because they're just like this is the, this is kind of a bottom support now. You don't want to go buy companies like Ford and GM because you're trying to catch a falling knife, right? But you know, the important thing to understand is that the stock market doesn't rule our economy. That by and large, our stock market is ruled by the economy. It's the other way around. People might start freaking out when the market falls, but what causes the market to fall, fall are the fundamentally underlying things out there. Now, the day-to-day swings up and down, up and down. That most people think of when people say timing. Yeah, that's emotional. That's, oh, they're going to give money. Let's buy it. Oh, they're not going to give money. Let's sell it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Back and forth, back and forth. But the long-term trends of the market, this big crash that we just had, that was about fundamentals. It's about a lot of things. But the biggest things that drove the most recent one are derivatives, which I did a whole show on. I can't really go into that today because it'll take too long. Um, subprime mortgages, which I'll talk about a little bit, but there's something worse coming. And I did say worse. Um, and consumer credit. Those three things added up to destroy the fundamental underlying asset that all of these financial institutions were based on. When they crumbled, they didn't, They were in cash shortfalls. So they stopped extending credit, which hit every other business out there that runs their business on a rotational credit line. And then the whole thing fell apart. And it was as forecastable as the storm that hit Dallas-Fort Worth last night, in spite of global warming, that drove temperatures in Dallas down to about 24 degrees and coated the roads with ice. And I'm giving a little bit of a delay before I leave today, which is why I'm broadcasting from my office today. So what's coming? Why isn't this over? Well, there's another mortgage crisis looming. And it's going to really start to hit us hard this spring. Just when people are thinking, well, it's springtime, people are going to start buying houses again. Uh, the you know new home starts are down, and there's less new homes being built than ever before. That's going to dry up some of the inventory, and eventually things are going to recover. What's going to hit us is a whole group of borrowers that weren't quite subprime, that were part of something called Alt-A or Alternative A mortgages. And these were people that borrowed money. They were in between 
a good regular mortgage and a subprime. They weren't as risky, but they weren't as solid. And there's a ton of those guys that are just beginning to default. And a lot of those Alt-A mortgages also borrowed a type of mortgage called uh, an option arm. An option arm is one of the most evil financial vehicles ever created known to man. Uh, an option arm is one of these loans that not only will your interest rates fluctuate, but usually you'll have a minimum payment that is lower than the interest itself, which means you can actually be in a house for, let's say, two years and end up owing more at the end of two years than you started with. You create absolutely no amortization of the underlying balance. Nothing declines in the value of the home. So you buy the home for $300,000 you could never afford. You pay less than interest only on it for two years. And at the end of two years, you owe $310,000 on your house. Nice, huh? And the market has eroded, and your house is now worth on the open market $260,000. Whoopsie, right? So now you're in deep shit. So now you panic and you try to sell your house. Well, no one will buy your house. Now you get laid off or you lose your job or your income declines. So that little second business you had is in decline. Whatever way you were funding that payment is in decline. Now you're struggling to make your payments. Now guess what happens? Since it's an arm or adjustable rate mortgage, the interest rate goes up. In an option arm, an interest rate can go up by as much as 7.5% in one year. Now... I want you to think about this. Even with low interest rates, and it just let's say to you know a standard mortgage rate of five percent. Five percent doesn't sound bad, but everything is relative. It's relative to how much money you borrowed in the first place and what your payment was originally. So somebody bought a three hundred thousand dollar home, but they were making a zero interest payment, and it went to five percent. It's just like you bought a three hundred thousand dollar home with a standard five percent mortgage. Right, that you could afford to make the payment for, and then your payment went from three hundred thousand and five percent to three hundred thousand and ten percent. Financially, for the individual, that has the same effect. And I don't think people are understanding that right now. That you hear about this guy, well, his adjustable rate mortgage adjusted up, and you go, well, he's paying five point one five percent. Hell, I bought fixed. I can't refinance right now. He's paying a lower interest rate than me. But he bought a house he couldn't afford in the first place. He bought it with a 1% or 0% interest payment. And it adjusted up 5 points. And ask yourself, what would happen to you on your mortgage if it adjusted up 5 points tomorrow? Would you still be able to afford to make your payment? Now, because you're listening to this show, and you're the type of person with the mindset to listen to a show like this, odds are you would be. But I want you to realize that there are millions of homes in Alt-A and Option Arm status that are just now beginning to feel the pinch and the pressure of upward adjusting interest rates and the downturn of the economy and the devaluation of homes around them. In fact, right now there are over 12 million houses in America where people that own them, if you want to call it owning them when you have a mortgage, people that are holding mortgages on them and living in them owe more money than the house is worth, 12 million. And this hasn't hit yet. The Alt-Day, the option arms really haven't hit yet. They're coming. And they're expecting defaults as high as 40 to 60%, and I'll link to the article that discusses that, and the rationalization is why. And this isn't the first time you've heard this from me. If you think back, I never really presented it to you in this format before, but I talked to you about people like WAMU, when WAMU was saying, we're, we're safe, we're fine, we're not going to go bankrupt. And I said, here's how many option arms that are sitting there that will be adjusting in the spring and summer of 2009. 
This is what's out there in front of them. This is the giant minefield that they've planted that they're forcing themselves to march through. So this isn't new. It's just that the mainstream media has finally started to pick up on this stuff and talk about it, even though we were talking about it six months ago. Why? Because now that it's about to happen, they want to jump on the bag wagon and say, see, we told you. But right now it's not even mainstream. It's people like Bloomberg, and it's on the Internet. You're not hearing this on your nightly news. Because everybody wants to say that the Savior, Obama, is going to turn the economy around. On to the Savior, Obama. And uh, how is he going to turn the economy around? Well, Mr. Obama has decided that his original plan for 200 to $300 billion of economic stimulus by building roads and bridges just won't be enough. I mean, have you looked at the price of a bridge lately? They're expensive. right? And we need to change light bulbs, too, to save energy. And we need to put in new HVAC systems that are more fuel efficient, etc., all over America. And what is this going to cost you and I, the taxpayer? One trillion dollars. One trillion dollars is the new estimate. And he hasn't even taken, folks, I want you, even if you support Barack Obama, and I've tried to be supportive of him since he's won the election, because if nothing else, he's now our president. And to root for him to fail is to root for our nation to fail. And I'm not going to be like the people that rooted for Bush to fail. Without seeing, when I'm rooting for him to fail, I'm rooting for the government to fail. And I didn't like Bush either. All right, I don't like any of these guys. But when I look at what this guy's doing, okay, takes office January 20th. He's already increased his spending plan on this one program from 200 billion to 1 trillion dollars before he's even taken the oath of office. So what is our? Why should we feel that that 1 trillion is a cap? That it won't be more than that? Probably be two or three trillion by the time he's done with it. And what we're going to do is we're going to build roads and infrastructure. Now, the government's been telling us for 15 years that we need to drive less. We need more fuel-efficient cars. We need to rely on public transportation. But our salvation is now increasing the infrastructure of roads and bridges throughout our nation. You really have to think about that. Think about this. The Chinese are doing the same thing. But the Chinese don't already have a massive infrastructure that we do. They also have more than a billion people. We have about 300 million people. The reality is what we're doing here, whether it's a good thing or not as far as an asset, and I've said this before, at least we have the roads and bridges and new buildings and et cetera when we're done. All right? At least we have something. It's not like giving it to Wall Street where they piss it away and we don't know where it went. All right? But... uh you know, we just have to look at this thing and go, well, you know, is it going to work? And then here's the bigger deal. We're writing another check for our children to cash. We're going to have government programs sitting out there spending a trillion dollars in the next few years that are supposed to create jobs. But they're creating jobs by taking money from the taxpayer's pocket and having the taxpayer's checkbook be the final answer to the taxpayer's problem. i got a better idea. How about you stop taxing us so much? Let us keep some of our own money. Maybe we'll create some jobs. Maybe we'll create some businesses. Maybe we'll put this country back together. But no. Now, here's the dangerous part. We are setting a precedent that is dangerous in the history of this nation. For the first time in this nation, we're setting a situation up where the United States government refuses to allow anybody to fail. Uh, First, it was Wall Street and the bankers, and we bailed them out. And AIG and Fannie and Freddie, and we bailed them out. And now... We're going to bail out the auto workers, which I have mixed emotions on. I can make a good case for it. I can make a good case against it. 
and maybe I'll talk about them a little, little bit more and, and tell you some things that I know about them that most people don't. This supposed to seventy dollars an hour that they make and where the burden of money really is and what the UAW has really done wrong and where that money's really going. Maybe I'll talk about that in the future, but the point is we're going to bail them out. And who else are we going to bail out now? Now we're going to bail out America, but we're not going to ba- bail out Joe and Jane America. No, this trillion dollars in stimulus, do you know what major metropolitan cities are doing all over the country right now? They're putting together their want lists. They're putting together their presentations. They're getting ready to go to Congress, the city of Dallas, the city of Fort Worth, the city of Austin, the city of Atlanta, the city of Jacksonville, Florida, Los Angeles, California, San Francisco, California, Portland, Oregon, Des Moines, Iowa, and keep naming them. Probably name every city in the top 500 metropolitan areas in the United States of America, and they are getting ready to go to Congress, just like the auto workers, probably on private jets, to ask for money. And they are framing their presentations this way We need this money because if you give it to us, we'll do this with it, and here's what the return of investment is. That sounds great, right? Except for some cities and some states. Where the cities and the states themselves are on the verge of bankruptcy, they're framing it, and if you don't do it, we're going to go bankrupt. All right, remember, I just published a list of 11 states that Goldman Sachs says, hey, if you're buying their bonds, you better insure the bonds because these 11 states could go bankrupt. Among them were states like New Jersey and major metro areas in New Jersey. And the state of New Jersey itself is telling the federal government, hey, we're too big to fail. You have to help us. That's why it went from $200 billion to a trillion before the guy even takes office. Because everybody's getting in line. Where have we heard this before? We're too big to fail. Can't let this happen. It would be a tragedy that we would never recover from. Think of what it would do to the stock market. Who's going to get in the line next? And what you don't... Or maybe you guys do understand, because I keep telling you, so, but many people don't understand, is that we've printed an extra $8 trillion this year. We've printed it. We've fabricated it out of thin air. This billion dollars here, billion dollars there, $300 billion there, you know, $200 billion there, 100 and some billion there, that's the stuff we were told about. The Fed back door has been pumping trillions of dollars directly into the financial systems, the banking systems. They've been lending directly, which they're not supposed to do. There's $2 trillion that we cannot account for at the Federal Reserve right now. $2 trillion. I talked about this in a podcast last week. The Bloomberg went and said, you know, we'd like to know where you put the people's money. And the Fed said, we don't have to tell you. And they won't tell us where the $2 trillion even went to, how it's being overseen, where, where it went. So what's the, what's the big issue here? The big issue here is that we're creating a system where when people are about to fail, they run to the government to be saved. And we've set a precedent that the government will then save you and bail you out. But the reality is that the government only gets their money from one place. And people, you have to understand this. Put your hand, if you're a guy, most likely, on your back right pocket right now and feel the little lump there that is your wallet. If you're a lady, most likely you carry a purse. And if you don't, don't be offended because I said you carry a purse. But sit your hand and find your purse and find your checkbook or your wallet. That's where they get 100% of their money, from checkbooks and wallets just like that all over America, from rich people and from poor people. And they take money from all of us as equal opportunity Robin Hoods. All right? And then they put it wherever they want it. And that the end of the game is the American taxpayer's checkbook. 
There is no other source of money for our government. The only way they can raise more is to jack taxes up. And of course, they're asinine, and if they'd actually lower taxes, they'd get more money. Maybe I'll talk about that in the future. But I just want you to understand what's happening right now. So we've got this mortgage crisis, and now we've set the government up to say, no matter what happens, we'll bail you out with taxpayer money that we'll mortgage the future of our nation for. All right? So let's look over to our friends in Russia and see what effect this type of a scenario is having on them right now. It's happened much more acutely, much more short-term for a different reason. Russia has just devalued its ruble for the second time this week. It may have to do one or two more devaluations of it, okay, this week, still. And, and why do we care about the Russian ruble devaluing? Well, we have to care, because it is our future. It's what we can expect to happen here now that we've pumped $8 trillion into our economy that we don't have. We didn't get $8 trillion worth of gold and then print money to go against it. We don't do that anymore. We just fabricated $8 trillion out of nothing. And those $8 trillion have to suck their value from the existing money supply. Sort of that's what's happening in Russia right now. See, what really happened in Russia is what I've told you about already. Russia built their economy based on a floor for oil of $70. And they put a lot of things in place as oil was at 90, 110, 120, went up to 140. Now, Russia wasn't stupid. They didn't adjust their economic policies from 70 to 110 when it hit 140. They said, no, 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 it will come down. It will come down. We know. Yeah, right? Okay. So they kept it at 70, which seemed like a good floor. And then what happened? Oil fell right through the floor. And as I said, I think there's something nefarious behind this. Now oil's trading at about $45 a barrel. And the main source of income for Russia from external exportation has been oil. All right? So what has Russia done here? They've done two things with one attempt. And that is to stave off people buying up their foreign reserves. They've devalued their currency. In other words, hostile investors are coming and start buying ruples up out of the central bank and basically try to financially take over a country and force the country to devalue further so they can pull up more ruples foreign exchange investing. Right? So you go ahead and you go ahead and do the devaluation before they can before they buy everything up. All right. So you 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 weaken the downturn opportunity for them. So you stave off that, that international investor. But the other thing that you do is you make exports more attractive to other nations because your nation is now using a currency that's worth less money relative to other currencies. So I know this is like because you think when the currency goes down, it's a bad thing. But in some ways, it's a good thing if your economy is dependent upon exports. Russia's economy is dependent on quite a few exports, the main one being oil. So how do you get more ruples? to pay Ivan with, who works at the oil plant. Well, if you devalue his ruples, you get less American dollars for the oil, but that converts to a greater number of ruples to pay Ivan with. All right? So that's what's going on now. The problem for Ivan is his money's worth less. So the only thing that he can continue to buy at a constant rate are things that are produced inside of Russia. All right. Everything that comes from outside into Russia now costs him more. That's the effect of inflation. Plus, he's already been renting a house. All right. Now, the landlord isn't going to drop the rate on his house, so the cost, the effective cost of his home just went up. And if he moves, it really went up. So it creates inflation. 
So by being in a situation where you have to start devaluing your currency and making it worth less, you do make your, your offerings more attractive to countries you export to. However, you create inflation in your own nation. The cost of goods locally go way up at the expense of your people. Now, the Russians aren't the heartless people that we've been led to believe. They don't want to do this. They're in a situation where they have no choice but to do this. And our nation's heading that way too. Because we've created a much bigger problem that tends to take longer to be seen because we don't export oil. And we're not 100% vested in the cost of oil. In fact, low oil is good for the United States. So temporarily, we're benefiting from the low cost of oil while we're weakest. The other side of the coin. I told you last week, something's wrong here with this oil. It's too low. Something is going to happen to drive it back up or to drive it way down. It's either going to go below a buck or it's going to go back up. Right? It can't stay where it is. Something's at work. Well, OPEC and the Russians... Shocking that they showed up. Just met over in uh, Africa. I can't remember where it was. Algeria, I think. And uh, they have agreed collectively to cut the production of oil by one and a half to two million barrels a day. Now, remember what happened when a natural disaster cut oil by a million barrels a day for three weeks in the summertime. Oil went up 25-30% overnight. Don't look for that to happen here because demand is way down. They're already discussing whether that cut is enough. And here's the problem for the oil producers. If they cut supply, demand will then outweigh supply and prices will go up, yes. But you can only cut supply so far before you're selling too few units. So it's a very delicate balance for them. But just now, I've said $70 a barrel oil for Russia. I've said it over and over and over. That's their bogey. That's where they need. Well, the head of OPEC came out and said, you know what our target is? We don't want to push oil back to $140. Folks, relax, relax. $75. What a shock. What a shock that OPEC came out with a number that puts the Russians back into kind of their sweet side of their territory and rescues their economy. Now, I'm not for destroying the Russian economy here. All right, I think maybe some people are. That's a little tinfoil hat speak. But if you look at what's going on with Russia right now, this is laying the groundwork for Soviet breakup too, where the nation of Russia breaks up into its component parts if something's not done soon. This is creating a dangerous situation. It's creating a dangerous situation because it's incentivizing Russia to do something like maybe bomb a couple pipelines in some of their breakaway children's uh, city-states, right? They're like like Kazakhstan and, and all stuff that went on with Georgia, etc., just, you know, drop a couple bombs on a couple pipelines for some reason, whatever that reason made or made up or real may be, and all of a sudden oil supply is massively cut, and the price of oil goes back up and you save your economy. That's a dangerous powder cap. I'm not saying they'll do it. I'm saying it's, it's a reality that's out there for them. And then the other side of it is just this forecast for us. So I want you to add this all up, and I want you to think about this, and I don't want you to, like, tune out today because I'm on the economy. I want you to realize what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to make you understand that the risk that we face is not hit bottom. It's not gotten any better. It's gotten worse, and it's continuing to get worse. Now, I'm not saying that this is the end-all, be-all, greater depression absolutely going to hit. There's a possibility in all this that we actually might create a bubble that two to three years from now the economy could look better than ever because every nation in the world is taking the same approach and pumping money, pumping money, pumping money. 
And the derivatives casino has not slowed down at all. The guys that are making bets on the win-loss of the market are still doing it in the shadow money lending world where they're counterfeiting funds. And if the government pumps enough funds in to prop everything up, and that casino takes off again. And we do see a rebound in the housing market because the house is worth a certain amount of money no matter what happens. right? Somebody needs to live somewhere. And that starts to rebound. You can see a huge rebound. I'm not betting on it. But it's a possibility. And if that happens, the next crash will be the worst one we've ever seen. If we're smart about this, and if the Fed starts to pull this money back in and does what it's supposed to do, and doesn't take care of special interests, these are some big ifs, folks. But if everything works out the way it is, we could come out of this crisis a lot stronger, and maybe we won't be dumb and go back into it. The problem is it just seems like every dumb thing that we do to ourselves we then find a stupider thing to do to ourselves. I mean, remember the dot-com crash? Everybody had learned we're not going to invest in companies that don't make money anymore. So now we decided to turn around and we invested in companies that create money. <laughs> now, so instead of investing in incompetent counterfeiters that don't have printing presses, we chose to put our money into competent counterfeiting operations that have good printing presses that print very realistic-looking money and hope no one would ever figure out what they were doing. Right? That's what we did with this derivatives nonsense. And it hit us hard. There's a lot still waiting to wash out. And what I want you to prepare for is for the investor market to panic even further. As more and more news reports start to come out about more and more people losing their jobs and all these all-day loans and all these adjustable arms. They're not new. They're not unknown. It's not like when you're going to hear it in, in February and March, okay? Ah, uh, second mortgage crisis is beginning to rear its ugly head. You know, things like that. You know, Susie and Bob were not subprime lenders. They were hardworking individuals, but Bob just lost his technology job. They borrowed more than they can afford in something that's called an Alt-A loan. We're just beginning to understand the effects of this now. That's the kind of crap you're going to hear. All right, I can almost write a script for these guys in advance, and they'll show Bob, you know, looking through the want ads or online on Jobs.com. They'll show a little foreclosure notice sitting in front of him on his on his table, and they'll make your heart bleed for Bob. But the reality is that Bob bought a four hundred thousand dollar house, and he could afford a two hundred thousand dollar house, and that's biting him in the ass, and that's going to bite us in the ass because in the end, in the end, we're going to have. The savior government come in, and I think we've established now, it doesn't matter if it's Barack Obama or George Bush, the same philosophy. We'll come in and prop you up, and we'll write you a check. And again, put your hand on your wallet or your checkbook, and that's where it's going to come from. It's a check you can't cash, but they don't care. It's what's destroying our economy, and to a large degree, it's what's destroying our nation right now. And all it will take is one little blip on top of this to push things over the edge. One little cascading event. It could be a pandemic. It could be a terrorist attack. It could be anything. But this country is so weakened right now in this situation that we have our own troops training to, to suppress martial law or to, to enforce martial law and suppress our own people. That's going on right now. There's video out there you can look up. It's time to take what you do seriously. And I want to close today on a note that I got some, from somebody this morning. And to be fair to them, I didn't read the entire thing. But I got the gist of it. And basically what he was saying is, I know you say your show is one, man one man's opinion. But 
you have this constant statement that the roving hordes are just not coming. We're not going to have a Mad Max breakdown where roving hordes come out and wipe out and burn down every city and burn down everybody's house, etc. He's right. I don't. But he takes it to the extreme. It's like where I'm saying the only thing you have to worry about is economic and job loss, etc. No. When all this crap hits, sooner or later you start to see civil unrest. And you have two major threats in that situation. Your neighbor that comes to steal what you have, and the government that comes to prevent him from doing it and oppresses everybody and takes away your means of defense. Just like happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. All right? I just don't see 50,000 people ganged up in one roving gang with a whole bunch of Mad Max cars running across the nation from one side to the next while there's no gasoline and no money, right? Wiping out everything as they go like a, like a swarm of locusts. Why don't I see that? Because one constant is there. And I'm not very pleased with the constant, but it's a reality. And that's our United States military. And they simply will not allow it. You mass together in a roving horde, and they'll put a JDAM right in the middle of your little horde. All right? And he started talking, and I didn't read the whole thing, so I'm going to want to be fair. I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'll comment further if I feel I need to. But they basically, well, during the, when the Roman Empire broke down, this isn't the Roman Empire. Despite many things that look just like the Roman Empire, the reality on the ground is not Rome. It doesn't take three days to get from one city to the next with a message. It takes 13 seconds on a BlackBerry. And even without a BlackBerry, it takes an hour in a car. And, the, and you know what? Even if we have the, the grid failure and everything else, the military has comm systems. All right? And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not real pleased with the fact that the military may take over my nation. I'm actually really fe- fearful for it. But I also say that there is one upside, and that is that you're not going to have Mad Max. All right? I'm sorry. And if that's what you're preparing for, I hope you're not using it as justification with your wife to buy more guns. Because I, I think that a lot of folks out there, that's what this is. It's a justification for irrational spending on things that you should not buy. Now, I have nothing against guns. I have, got I guess, 19 rifles and, and, and quite a few handguns. And I will continue to buy rifles and handguns as long as I'm allowed to under the U.S. Constitution. But I won't do it at the expense of being able to feed my family, pay my bills, and keep a roof over my head. And I won't do it because I think Mad Max is coming. I'll do it because I want to, I like it, and it's my right, and it's part of my responsible spending for myself. And again, you guys that think that that's the eventuality, a James Wesley Rawls scenario. All major cities are on fire. Most small towns are on fire. 70% of the population dead. Everybody killing everybody. People eating each other. Folks, you know what? It could happen. You know, right? It could. And the odds of it happening are about the same as the odds of a meteor hitting the earth. It could happen. It's not what you plan for first. The first disaster that you plan for is a disaster that affects you in your home and your neighbors don't know or care. That's the first disaster you plan for. The second disaster includes your neighbors and yourself, but not the people that live on the other side of town. The next disaster that you plan for would include those people on the other side of town, but not the other side of your state. The next disaster would affect the region of the nation around you. The next disaster affects the entire nation. The final thing that you prepare for is a disaster that affects the entire globe. Why? Because it's the order of probability. 
And because you're one person with limited resources, and you can't do everything at once, so you have to stage things out in an order of priority. And once you have a home that's paid for, that you can stay in, and you won't lose, that's in a location that's suitable, that isn't likely to be burned down by mobs of civil unrest, because that will happen. All right. If we have a total breakdown, there will be cities aflame. But not every house in every suburb across America. That's just nonsense. All right. And I would say get out of the suburbs. I'm trying to do it. If you can, but don't think you have to. Don't think it's your only option. And once you have some food stored up so your family can survive three, six months, a year. And once you have your debt paid down. And you have a small stock of weapons so you can defend what you have. And you're trained. You have evacuation plans. And you have everything in place. If you want to go to the next level and start building underground bunkers, all right, go ahead. Go ahead. It's okay. I'll come help you dig the hole. But don't put the hole that you're digging ahead of providing for your family and preparing for the disasters that may hit you locally or that hole you're digging might just end up being your own grave. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where you You can scream and you can holler